Good morning. Uh, happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. Uh, when it was Mother's Day, I told a story about my mother, and so I thought today I'd uh, tell a brief story about my father. Some of you might know this uh, already, um, but when I think of uh, one of the ways that my father has uh, impacted me the most in life, uh, he taught me a certain uh, fearlessness uh, about living life that I don't think one could teach any other way than through one's actions. Um, and so when I was in the ninth grade, um, my father and mother uh, sold their business. He was a, a businessman. Um, they determined to sell, they, they owned some properties as well. We were living in South Florida at the time. They determined to sell everything. They, they believed they had heard uh, God tell them to sell it all and for my father to, uh, to go to seminary. Um, it took a while for all of this to happen and for all of the, everything to shake out and uh, to actually to sell our own home uh, and, to, <laughs> and for my dad to actually get into seminary. Uh, apparently it took a while too. Uh, but my senior year of high school, uh, my whole family moved. Uh, from South Florida to rural Kentucky uh, for my dad uh, to chase this calling. And um, it was remarkable because I already had a brother who was in college. I was about to enter into college. I had a younger brother uh, who was in uh, high school uh, and a younger sister who was uh, eighth grade. Uh, so he had four children uh, who were all about to hit... <laughs> this prime time where you're paying for your kid's college education. And, um, and many thought he was crazy. Uh, looking back, uh, I also, uh, I don't know if I could have done that. Um, but as I started, uh, he had a fearlessness about him. Uh, he lived life uh, fully, still does uh, live life fully. He was here last week. Um, some of you might have uh, had the chance to meet him. Um, and in that way, I've always looked up to my father, and I hope you have a father figure in your life, too, that you can look up to or have looked up to uh, or do look up to. Uh, let us pray together as we begin. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are the Father to whom all fathers and mothers aspire to be like. May we treat our children as you do. May we love them well. May we disciple them well. God, we give you thanks for this church and the way we disciple one another and the way we uh, do community together. I pray this morning that your presence be made clear in this place, that your spirit be poured out on this room and that you speak to us in some clear ways. Give us some clear steps to take. And may we leave here a changed people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The passage this morning, uh, indeed, as uh, Cheryl alluded to, uh, and as we heard, uh, has demons in it, um, which is not something I've talked a whole lot about. And this morning, um, I actually plan to talk about Demons, not demons, uh, 
which is to say, uh, in my own life, uh, I don't know about your life, I don't believe uh, I, I can recall a moment where I ever felt like I encountered somebody with demons. Uh, however, I have encountered many people, myself included, with demons. You know what I'm saying? We, we all have these things that plague us, right? These, uh, whether it's secret sin, whether it is uh, open sin, whether it is a lifelong struggle of one kind or another, things that just won't go away, things that might be depression that sit in our head, negative thoughts that just keep coming and are critical, whether thoughts are toward our own self or toward others. I don't know what your demons are, but I'm pretty sure you've got something. We meet a man in the story today who has uh, literal demons, in fact, a legion of them, a, an army of demons that Jesus must confront. I don't think it's a stretch to take what happens in this story and to apply it to the sorts of demons that you and I encounter on a daily basis. And I find this to be much more practical in this moment, and so this is what I plan to do. Forgive me if you think I'm taking license with the scripture. I don't believe I am. And in fact, I think I'm uh, finding a word of God to us this morning that is quite practical indeed. If you'll open up to, to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, we find this story uh, that appears in all three of the synoptic gospels uh, about uh, a man who uh, is uh, in uh, Gerasa, or at least he's on the outskirts of a place called Gerasa. He's, he's in the land of the Gerasenes, it's an odd place for Jesus to find himself. It's the only time he finds himself here in all of the New Testament uh, because this is actually Gentile territory. He heads out on a boat and he, he crosses the, the Sea of Galilee and he finds himself in, in a foreign land, so to speak, right? The pigs give it away, right? Jews don't do anything with pigs and, well, there's a bunch of pigs in this story, and so Jesus is there, and he meets this man. And um, I want to encourage you this morning, as I read through some of this passage again, I want to encourage you to find yourself in this person. This week, as I uh, reflected on this, this passage again and again and again, um, I found myself in him in different ways. And I hope you do, too. Because the story ends well, if you do. It says this, uh, Then they uh, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. He wasn't wearing clothes, he had not lived in a house, and he was actually living 
among the tombs. The first thing I thought when I read this was the tombs part, because coming off of last week, if you recall, we read from Proverbs chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 8, uh, it's the story of wisdom, and the path of the path of wisdom uh, leads us to two different possible ends. Wisdom leads us to life, right? But the, the opposite of wisdom, or the, the lack of wisdom, leads us, do you remember, to, to death. And here we find a man who's out where? He's out at the tombs. He's on the outskirts of town, and he's living among the tombs, among death, and that's what his life is. Is. Somehow or another, these demons have driven him out of town, and there he is, living among death. But it's not that alone. He also doesn't have any clothes on, right? Which, you know, uh, makes him pretty vulnerable, if you ask me. Whether it's hot out and he's vulnerable to the heat, whether it's really cold out and he's vulnerable to the, uh, to the cold, or vulnerable in any other way you might imagine someone is who is naked and alone out in the desert. And then the third thing is actually the one that interests me most. And it's the, the point that is going to come back at the end of this story. And it's something that's quite easy to overlook. It says that he lives uh, among the tombs and he had not lived in a house. Not lived in a house. Now, it's very easy to read that word and to read that phrase and to think, right, he lives outside. Uh, he doesn't live in a, in a home or in a house somewhere. But the fact is that word doesn't just mean house. It means, in that day and age, a household. Nobody had a nuclear family with just two parents and a bunch of kids, and, and that was their house. People lived in households. They had uh, larger families living with them. They maybe lived among their friends, and they lived very close by to all kinds of people, and they lived in a tight-knit community where you loved it and you hated it at the same time because everybody knew everything. But you were not alone, and you had other people in your life, people who knew you. Whether you wanted them to or not, they knew you. But this man, this man did not enjoy that. This man did not have a household. He did not have a place to call home. And he did not have people who knew him, at least at this point in life. Perhaps at some point in life he did. Maybe earlier on he was doing great and the demons were not plaguing him. And then those same people who knew him, they couldn't put up with it anymore. And they kicked him to the edge of town. And they said, we, can't, we just can't deal with it. A man with a legion of demons in him? How long can we put up with that? When I was uh, in uh, Kentucky, I, uh, the first job I ever had uh, out of college was at a, uh, a mental hospital. And it was a, uh, one of the first uh, not just in the state of Kentucky, but uh, actually in the United States. It, was, it, was, it, it had been there since the 1800s. And uh, there was a, a part of this hospital 
uh, where uh, if you go down into what can only be called the dungeon, um, you find what they used to do to these patients, right? As they, as they became crazy, they, had, they still to this, well, to that day, I think they've torn it down now, um, they had the, the chains on the walls where they would literally chain uh, the people who had mental illnesses to the walls so that that person couldn't hurt themselves or other people. This man, something similar, plagued with demons, he has chains around him, he's able to break these chains sometimes, and the people, just like uh, in Kentucky, who send off their family members to the mental hospital and say, we can't deal with this anymore, I'm certain the people back then said the same thing to this man. They said, we can't take the demons anymore, uh, get them out of our house, and he is ushered into isolation, and he is alone in the world. The story, of course, goes on, and we know how it goes from this point. It says that Jesus meets this man, and immediately he cried out, and he fell down before Jesus, and he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. The question we should ask at this point is, who's speaking, right? Who is speaking? Is it this man who's speaking, or is it his demons who are speaking? And of course, this is the question you and I can ask sometimes, too. When we lash out at our family, or our friends, or, or we find ourselves with road rage uh, on, uh, you know, uh, I-95, and we're asking ourselves, What's, who's speaking right now? Is this Eric in full control of his body, or is it uh, the demon in me that is lashing out at this man who just cut me off, right? Who's speaking right now? Same thing here. Who's speaking? And Jesus, it goes on, uh, verse 29 now, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and driven by the demon into the desert. And then Jesus asked him, what's your name, right? What's your name? And again, you're kind of wondering, who is he speaking to? Is he speaking to the man or to what's inside of this man? Well, now we finally get an answer that's clear. He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And now, and you should notice this, and this is where grammar matters. We go from, he did something, he said something, he begged, don't hurt me, the singular, right? The sing it's all singular until this point. And at this point, it's very clear who's in charge. It's not the man. It is the they. And they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. And the man with the demons is suddenly no longer the man with the demons. He's not in control at all. It's the demons who have been in control. 
And these demons, well, now they're saying they're facing the real problem, for them anyway, and that is Jesus has shown up on the scene. And he's the one who can do something about this. He's the one that can solve this problem for this man. And they start negotiating. I don't know why Jesus uh, is not able. I don't know why Jesus does negotiate with them, but but he does. And he uh, allows them to be thrown into the pigs and then the pigs uh, rush off uh, into the sea. I don't understand it all. I don't know why this happens. Frankly, it's not part of my sermon. It's, it's, It's almost unimportant to what happens because I'm much more interested in what happens next. The demons come out of this man, it says. The herd rushes down the steep bank into the lake, and they drown. And then in verse 34, the herdsmen, they saw what happened, and they fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone. And here again you got to pay attention to who this man now is. We knew who he was before, right? He was the man who, who had no clothes on, who was out among the tombs, living among death, all alone, isolated, and possessed by the, the legion. And now who is he? Well, now, well, now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he's clothed, and he is in his right mind. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed, and he's in his right mind. What Jesus does for this man is he solves uh, his problems in a holistic kind of way. Because you might be tempted to think that this man, he just needs an exorcism. Which he did, right? But Jesus, and I would say this more generally, is far more interested uh, in the whole of who you are. He's not just interested in some spiritual slice of who you are. He wants to care for your mind, your body, and your soul, all of it. And so we find a man who's what? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. His heart is in the right place. He is following Christ. He is now a disciple. This is what disciples do. They sit at the feet of the master. Jesus is the rabbi, and this man whose heart has been set right, he's living in his right heart. And is clothed. His body has been taken care of. And he's in his right mind. And his mind... Well, it's been taken care of too. Mind, body, and spirit is all put right again, and he's capable of loving God. Story goes on. The people uh, of Gerasa, the the land of the Gerasenes, they show fear here, which... um, it's a little odd, I'll be, I'll be honest. This amazing thing has happened, uh, and all they can do is muster up some fear. 
it's also not odd because their entire uh, herd of swine that was about to feed them for the coming months and maybe years uh, has just rushed into the sea. And they're probably is happening right now. And so they send Jesus away. <clears throat> Before they do, the demon-possessed man and Jesus, well, they need to talk a little bit more. And so verse 37, all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes ask Jesus to depart from them, for they're seized with great fear. And so he got into the boat and he returned the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. And this, too, is fascinating, right? You might think, I would think, that Jesus would say, sure, hop in the boat with me. There's room. I've got a seat right here. Come along, uh, and we'll do this thing together. But that's not what happens. Jesus says, no. But I would encourage you to read very closely what happens next. Because there's one last thing this man needs. He has been fixed in mind, body, and heart. But there's this social element that he has been missing for years and years. He has been living in isolation from his household, it said. He had not lived in a household, but among the tombs, and so what does Jesus send him to go do? Well, in verse 39, it says, return to your household. Same word, right? Return to your household. Go back to those people who knew you and who know you. Those people who probably hurt you. And find community once again. And declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. There's something interesting in the last line that uh, you should pay attention to as well. Because Jesus gives him a command to do something, right? Of course he says, to go to your household, and I want to develop that in just a second here. But he also then says what he's probably saying to you as well this morning, which is, declare, it's actually, that's, that's a strong rendering of, of what the actual word is. It's actually more just like describe or kind of tell people how much God has done for you is what Jesus says. He gives them a command, go, go tell people what God has done for you. But what does the guy actually do? The guy, it says here, well, he went away proclaiming. He went away preaching. And I assure you, this is a far stronger word than what Jesus even told him to do. Jesus says, well, go tell people what, what God did for you. And he goes away and he preaches from the rooftops exactly what, and here's the interesting thing, he goes throughout the city, he proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus says, go tell uh, people what God did for you. And his response is to preach about Jesus. I mean, this seems only natural, right? 
He's doing the right thing. And he's finding himself in the middle of a city that he had been exiled from. And he's telling people the good news of what has happened in his own life. And his own life has been put right, mind, body, and soul. And he has been moved from a place of isolation where he was incapable of dealing with his own problems. He needed somebody from the outside to come in and to correct it all and to move him back to a place where he is again in community. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life, where you have felt a certain sense of powerlessness to fix whatever is going on in your life. And you've needed somebody or something from the outside to come on in and to rescue you and to set you right and to put you back in the community that you should be part of. That sounds a whole lot like the gospel to me. And it's the sort of thing that happens on a pretty routine basis in churches across America, in communities across America. And it's the sort of place that we should be. We should be helping people realize this is a problem. We want to help you through this thing. Whatever that thing is. Whatever those demons are in your life. We want to move you from that place to a place of healing and to a place of community. That's the nature of this story right here. But there's one last thing. and It has to do with households. I was listening to um, a book this week because I, I can't find time to read them, so now I listen to them uh, through Audible. And this one was by uh, a guy named Andy Crouch, uh, who I like quite a lot, actually. Uh, you should consider looking up his books. Um, and this one was about households. Households is his response to the, uh, the problem that plagues our world. And the problem that plagues our world, in his mind, is loneliness, which I think is true. Uh, I, I think our world is indeed plagued by loneliness. In households is his answer. Uh, Andy Crouch himself, uh, he relays a story in which uh, he himself, he, uh, before living, the demons are out there. <laughs> What's that? Or Scott texting me. <laughs> Don't forget this. Uh, so uh, Andy Crouch tells this story where before he got married, he lived in a house with three other men. And he and these three other men did something, frankly, radical. They shared a bank account. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. What? <laughs> yeah. They shared a bank account. They all had four jobs. And they, all the money went into one pot. And they shared that pot of money. And they lived in the same house together. And they knew each other. And they lived in this radical community together. Have you ever experienced that kind of household? I have not. He then said he got married. And after getting married, what most people do is what? They buy a home in the suburbs. And they might get to know their neighbor uh, they probably won't. Uh, they, they might get invested in a church where they see some people uh, once a week. But that's not what he did. He and his wife, they lived again with other couples under the same roof. And they lived in a household together. 
Have you ever done that? I have never done that. Kendall and I have done something uh, close-ish. When we lived at Baylor, we lived, uh, <laughs> well, I guess we did. Uh, we lived in a dormitory together, and it was lots and lots of people <laughs> under one roof. And you have a community together that eats together and that dines together, that talks together, that gets to know each other, that gets annoyed at each other. And you have a place where you feel like you belong. So Andy uh, Crouch goes on and he describes what a household is. What this man was missing and what Jesus pushed him back into. And the household, he describes, goes like this. He says, how do you know if you're part of a household? You are part of a household if there is someone who knows where you are physically today and who has at least some sense of how it feels to be where you are. Do you have that person or people? You are part of a household if there is someone who moves more quietly when they know you're asleep. You are part of a household if someone would check on you if you did not awaken. You're part of a household if people know things about you that you do not know about yourself, including things that, if you did know, you would seek to hide. Do you have those people in your life? You're part of a household if others are close enough to see you and know you as well as or better than you know yourself. You're a part of a household if you experience the conflict that is inevitable companion of closeness. If someone else makes such demands of you that you sometimes fantasize about driving them out of your life. And here I thought of this man right here, the demoniac. That there were people who were close enough to him who actually did drive them out of their life. You are part of a household if you sometimes dream of running away, perhaps to a far country, so that you will not be so terribly well known. You are part of a household if your return from a long journey prompts a spontaneous celebration. You are part of a household if when you avoid a party because of your anger, pride, guilt, or shame, someone notices and comes outside to plead with you to come on in. And here I have to imagine he's thinking of the story uh, of the prodigal son and that brother who's outside, right? The brother who's outside and does not want to come in and party with the rest of them. He goes on, and he says, this is the one thing we need more than any other, a community of recognition. While we must always insist that every human being matters, whether or not they are seen or treated as one by others, we also know that no human being can flourish as a person unless they are seen and treated as one. And for that, the household is the first and best place. We need a place where we cannot hide. We need a place where we cannot get lost. I don't know how to achieve that vision. I don't know that he knows how to achieve that vision. In many ways, I think our modern world has stripped the
and has moved us into our suburban houses where we are isolated from one another. And then occasionally we get together at church and we find ways to be together, but in a way that we can then escape when we need to. And so we have community on our terms, right? I think this in large part, like Andy Crouch, has led to a sense of uh, loneliness and isolation that I, I have to believe that this man, the demoniac, is wrestling with as he's out in the desert all alone without a household of his own. I don't know the answer. I don't know how to fix this as a church. I just know this much. That if we are going to be a church where people are known and loved, where we are going to be a church that looks like uh, a little bit like a household where you can show up and people will celebrate, or where you cannot show up and people will be concerned for you, well, then we need to do something to encourage that. We need hospitality. I've been talking to different people about hospitality this week. We need to be inviting people back into our homes as you feel comfortable. We need to be finding ways to invite each other back into our lives as you feel comfortable. I would hope this summer and this fall, these are various sorts of things that we are doing as a church. Because it's the only way that as we wrestle with our own demons, as we deal with them, as we come face to face with them, and as we allow uh, Christ uh, and the body of Christ uh, to set our hearts and our bodies and our souls and our minds straight again, we also find ourselves thrust back into a community and into a household. That's a lot to ask. But with the help of God, it's something to pursue. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are that father who invited that prodigal son home and celebrated by slaughtering the fatted calf. You are that father who walked out and noticed that the son who felt dejected and not celebrated, you saw him too. God, may we be the kind of community that sees both of those things too. May we come to love each other in a way that pours ourselves out for one another, that sees each other very clearly, that seeks to set uh, each other right in mind, body, heart, and soul, and that provides a safe place for us to become who you desire and make us to be. God, is a lot to ask, but we know that with your help and with each other, all things are possible. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. As we conclude the service today, I'd ask you to stand. We'll sing together Amazing Grace. Um, perhaps this morning you need some grace. <laughs> 
maybe you're the demoniac uh, wrestling with your own demons, the altar is definitely open, and I would love to pray with you. Uh, perhaps this morning you'd love to join the church. I think we have a family that might do that this morning. And if so, uh, now's the time to come forward. Um, or maybe uh, you just need to stay in your seat and to, to think and pray about what God is doing in your heart. I invite you to do that as well. Let's sing together.